This is Regina Barbara DeGraff, host of Spark Science, and you are listening to our episode about new science ideas and inclusive education. We recorded on location at the Sackness Convention in Long Beach, California. Here we go. Neutron, proton, mass defect, lyrical oxidation, your irrelevant mass spectrograph, your electron volt, atomic energy erupting as I get all open on betatrons, gamma rays, thermal cracking, cyclotron, any and every mic you're on, transuranium, if y'all was uranium, molecules, spontaneous combustion, Bam. Law of definite proportion game. Ink wait, I'm every element around. So I'm here at SACNIS, SACNIS National Convention here in Long Beach, California. Me and my friends are just wiped out because there's just so much goodness and overwhelming science and overwhelming support and overwhelming inclusion that it's just been great. So I'm here with Cherie and I'm going to let her say her full name, tell us what she does, and uh, we're going to get our conversation started. So my name is Cherie Peters. I am a graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm currently in my fourth year there, but I have two master's degrees before that, and I am a radio astronomer. So I am currently looking at things that go bump in the night. So all of these cool things that are extremely energetic in the universe that are changing in brightness over time. That sounds amazing. My student actually went to your talk um, a couple days ago and said it was amazing. Before we get into like what that entails, I kind of just want to really quickly talk about this convention and why you're here and how you feel about this convention and this organization. Excellent. So SACNES is one of my favorite societies in general as a scientist. It is a place where I first found a connection to a group of people who I don't normally see in the sciences on a daily basis and that is you know Chicanos, Hispanics and Native Americans so I myself am Native American I'm Yankton Sioux and Sacknes when I came to my first meeting I was an undergraduate I think I was a sophomore and it was the first time that I had really had the opportunity to talk to other people that look like me and had similar experiences and as I've continued to come to SACNES conferences, um, I've been able to not only create these great networks for people to understand what it means to be a person of color in the sciences, but it's also a place like where you can help other people too. It's also a really amazing place to talk about your research and hear other research, especially in the last couple of years, SACNES has really transformed for the physics and astronomy community. Um, and so we have some amazing talks and some of the most iconic people in astronomy giving talks here. And it's great, at least for me, to see these instrumental, these influential astronomers and astrophysicists come here and make a statement that they care about inclusion in, in science and in STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math. I always ask my people that I am interviewing, I ask them about a story that they maybe tell at a, at a party or something that at a party maybe that isn't full of other scientists and kind of trying to get people interested in their own science or maybe science in general. Yeah, so when I'm at parties, I, I like to you know, talk to people about my research because uh, that's what I'm the most excited about at the moment. And the way that I do that is I like to talk through analogies. So as I said at the beginning, I, I'm a radio astronomer who looks at things that go bump in the night. But what I really, really mean by this is the most energetic phenomena in the universe, including things like dying stars that are exploding, which we call supernovae, or black holes that are ripping apart stars, we call these tidal disruption events, or supermassive black holes at the centers of galaxies that have massive jets getting shot out um, called active galactic nuclei. So all these things are extremely, extremely energetic. Um, they shine brighter than you know, a galaxy, which is filled with all these billions of stars, and a single star can outshine all of that. 
And that's what I get to look at. So because these events are giving off so much energy, they fade out over time or they have changes in brightness over time. And what I get to do is look at all those things. So all the things that go bump in the night. I get to do this through a survey called Chili's, which is being- Not the restaurant. Not the restaurant. <laughs> so this is a survey that's being done at the Very Large Array um, out in Socorro, New Mexico. And what we do is we are staring at a very small piece of the sky and we're looking at it for thousand hours that are like done over about four to five years. I get to look at every single little observation that we do because we can't do all 1000 hours at the same time. So each observation we call an epic. And what I do is I make images for every single one of those epics and then I compare them to pick out, you know, what objects are changing in brightness. And so I go through and I get a look and characterize how that light is changing over time, ultimately to hopefully classify some of these objects so that if we just see how the light is changing over time in other surveys, to say, oh, that's clearly a supernova or that's a tidal disruption event or that's an active galactic nuclei. For our listeners that like maybe don't know a lot about astronomy, when we're talking about radio astronomy, we're talking about light, you know, radio waves are still light. It's still part of the electromagnetic spectrum. So when you say brightness, you can still see that in radio waves. Yes. Great to clarify that. Yes. But there are people who do this as well in other wavelengths. So including the visual, you know, optical light that we see with our eyes, x-rays, for example. So every single time that you look at a different wavelength, you're getting new information. So with radio, we're getting information about what we call shocks or accelerated particles. So it's just a new or not necessarily new, but just another way of looking um, at some different physical things that are happening in the universe. Like I said, I like to talk with analogies and it's my research. So during my first master's degree, um, I got to do a, a really cool experiment, which was what I like to call stellar forensic science. Um, so what this is, is uh, when we have, you know, exploding dust of stars like supernovae, they eject out all this material over time into what we call supernova remnants. And so I like to think of these supernova remnants as the dead bodies of stars. And so I was looking at how asymmetric or symmetric these supernova remnants were to kind of look back at the actual explosion mechanism or how they died. So I was looking at the dead bodies of stars to figure out how they died. So that was my first master's degree. Um, I was doing that in infrared light, but it's a while ago, but it's still a lot of fun. Stellar forensics, you, you should just start a like, a like a YouTube or like do a couple podcasts. I could help you out. <laughs> Since we're here at the, the conference, and I, I just see a lot of support, there's a lot of advisors, there's a lot of professors, there's a lot of people that are established, and just they, they're going around and they're taking time out of their day, and they're ve being very sincere and trying to help all these undergrads, these grad students, and the, even these um, postdocs. So what would you, what kind of advice would you give for, maybe even yourself, you know, what advice would you give to yourself in your first years of undergrad, that confused young Cherie, what would you, what kind of advice would you give her to like stick with science? And I, and I know that there's not one, you know, silver bullet that's going to solve inclusion in science, but what is one of the things you would have said? And then also what are, what is one of the things you would have said to an advisor that maybe isn't as familiar to other cultures and other people's experiences than the traditional academic track? Okay. Okay. For the first one, if I were talking to myself, back in the day, and I still do this today, I think the biggest piece of information that I want to keep reminding myself of is that it's okay to make mistakes. And it is through mistakes that we learn. So every single physics problem that I got wrong, 
every single test that I failed, everything um, was a learning experience. And it is through those experiences that I have become the person that I am today. So kind of like a perseverance sort of thing with the added fact that it's okay to fail. It just makes you a better scientist, a better person. And in terms of talking to advisors and things like that, I think listening is the key thing to remember. So many times I've had advisors or just people in general come to me and say, I want to tell you about my experiences. And I think that they believe that they're trying to be kind and helpful by sharing that. But at times it's just kind of, hey, we need to talk about our experience right now and knowing that even though it's relatable to other experiences, it's not exactly the same for everyone. So there are unique components and that's what makes good and have these new ideas um, is those unique experiences. So listening to that and being sympathetic rather than empathetic. You may not understand the exact experience itself, so you can sympathize with them in terms of like being like, wow, that's really hard or difficult, but not necessarily saying, oh, I've lived the exact same thing. It's very, very, it's a fine line, you know, because I I feel like maybe students do want to hear some of the professors' stories too, but they also want to be able to share. So they want it as a two-way street. I I remember showing this empathy versus sympathy video, though, and and I agree that you should, a faculty member shouldn't be like, well, I grew up poor, so I know what it's like to be a black man, which is not the same thing, that we should not be empathetic in that way. But I think we should be empathetic in the way of trying to understand the other person's experience and trying to draw on something to at least feel that feeling, but not necessarily think it's the same thing. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's kind of the point that I'm trying to get across here. And whether or not those words are completely articulate is a whole other issue. (laughs) It's very complex, and we have to really think about what we mean by sympathy and what we mean by empathy because they're a lot more complex than just those words. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) And then so I want to go into my last question and that is how is your, any part of your identity, how does that kind of link to your science identity but also how is that portrayed in the the media? Give me a good example, maybe an accurate example and give me like a horrible horrible example if you can think of any yeah okay so we can start off with a horrible horrible example because I'm just gonna get it out and get out with the grossness so I've been approached even as a graduate student so for those of you who don't know I'm Native American I'm Yankton Sioux and as a graduate student I was told by somebody who was giving me money um, that I didn't have critical thinking skills so at this point I had already had at least one master's I think I might have had two master's degrees at that point but they they were questioning how a Native American could have any kind of scientific knowledge or critical thinking skills and their arguments were based off of religion so they made assumptions about what Native American religion was, and it sounded like they kind of clumped all Native American cultures together, or even all indigenous cultures together, which is extremely heartbreaking. And so having to deal with that and explain, like, you know, I as an individual definitely have critical thinking skills that anyone who's Native American can have critical thinking skills. It's not our culture that defines our brains or our knowledge or anything like that. And so... I think that's one of the worst things that I've ever had in terms of stereotypes. I think though that in terms of like, in general, I I don't fall into this idea of like being a stoic Native American. Um, I'm probably the least stoic person I've ever met. Um, But I think that in a lot of ways it, it is a reminder for me to like, you know, keep myself calm, to 
continue doing things. Um, but it's it's difficult. I'm trying to think of really good stereotypes, but it's <laughs> it's tough. Yeah, I mean, Native Americans aren't really portrayed in in social media and in pop culture really at all. Like, there's the stereotype that Native Americans and Indigenous people are in the past and they don't live in the in the now. They we don't they don't exist now, and that's that's a massive problem. Most definitely. And actually, along that, it kind of reminds me that there is kind of a stereotype about Native Americans being very socially active in terms of, like, social injustice and things like that. So we've had a lot of things happening even currently with, like, the Dakota Access Pipeline. And that's a, that's a very true thing. I think that a lot of us are very sensitive and aware of, you know, what's happening to our world in general. And we're, we're proud to stand up for the things, you know, that we believe in, including things like when the 30-meter telescope um, tried to be built on Mauna Kea. You know, so these are things that we do try and talk about, and I think that that is a positive thing, although it's not always necessarily portrayed as that. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I agree. That's awesome. It's good to have some relevant stuff in this show, because <laughs> sometimes it's just not. So I, I wanted to ask you just kind of at the end here, where do you see yourself? Like, where do you see yourself doing the science, and like, what do you want to do with it? in the future. Yeah. So this is something that I ask myself often and the the answer changes often too um, because I think that there are just so many different opportunities with the skills that you learn as an astronomer, as a physicist. Currently, I really like teaching. I like sharing knowledge and I like supporting other people. So even here at Sacknes, like as you said, everyone's kind of supporting one another and there's like this waterfall of just knowledge being shared. And I don't want to say waterfall because that implies that it's one way, but I think that even from like undergraduates, you learn things as like professors and you know, everyone's learning from one another. And so I really would like to continue fostering that within my own life. So if I could, I would really like to go and teach a, you know, maybe a college that doesn't have as many opportunities for astronomy and physics um, to go and help out there, give other students, you know, unique experiences. Um, There's no really competition at this at this convention. Everyone, there, there seems to be no ego wrangling. Exactly. I think that everyone has something unique to bring to the table. And that's one of the best things about SACNAS is yesterday we had um, a talking or conversations with scientists and so there were probably what seven to ten people sitting around a giant table yeah there were about ten tables bunch of people and at those tables anybody could ask questions of anybody else it was just a learning experience for everyone and and the things that we talked about you know were things all the way from being an undergraduate and how to get into research all the way to just like you know how do you take care of yourself in terms of, you know, doing a life balance, um, you know, with like work and just other things. Really, really amazing things. And everyone seemed to have really great information to share. Just for our listeners to kind of get an idea of what Sheree is talking about, we had about, ten, like you said, 10 people around a table. There are about 10 tables, but that was only for one discipline. So that was one room, you know, one room being bio, one room being computer science, one room being um, engineering. So think about how many people you're reaching with like roughly 100 people per room in each di- different discipline. And at this convention, there's roughly 4,000 people. Keep in mind that there are 4,000 scientists either in undergrad, grad school, or postdoc, or professional, that are here to support inclusion in STEM, to support students that care about diversity and care about different voices. So that's, that's a huge message, I feel. Most definitely. And it's not just you know that one time where we're all sitting at tables. If you go through and walk along the booths, seeing how people interact and the support that they give one another is 
you don't see it at any other conferences. I, I have to say it again, it's one of the best things about being at SACNAS. It's just the support that everyone gives one another. Everyone wants to see each other succeed, find jobs, do the things that they love. It's just, it's like a family. Sackness is a family. That is beautiful, and I'm going to end there. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for talking with me, and I hope that all your dreams come true. And and that uh, you keep on making those analogies, and you keep on studying what goes bump in the night, because that is an amazing, amazing tagline. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Spark Science. I'm Regina Barber-DeGraff. We are exploring stories of human curiosity. That's our tagline. We are here at SACNAS 2016. We were here last year and we're on the exhibitor floor and we're back at the NASA booth. And I'm here with, you know what, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and say your name and like give me like a short description of what you are doing right now that involves science. So my name is Dominique Butler. I'm from Los Angeles. And right now I'm an astronomy major. I'm in community college, but my plan is to transfer to USC. I'm gonna major in astronomy and minor in uh, journalism. You're here at the NASA booth, and how did you get associated with NASA? And also, I believe your mentor has told me an awesome story about your life before going into astronomy. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Gosh, so it's been a total whirlwind. It's, it's almost been magical, I would say. I don't know if it's appropriate to use magic with science, but I feel like I believe in magic, so there you go. <laughs> well, people thought that what was magic a long time ago was actually science. Exactly, yeah, so I feel like it does go hand in hand. But I started in January of 2016. So I started out as a philosophy major, but I took philosophy, astronomy, and French. Those are the three classes I kind of enrolled in, and I thought I'm going to be able to choose a major and a minor out of these three, I'll kind of mix and match or whatever. And so philosophy, although I love it, I mean, I, you know, read and study on my own, it just drove me crazy. And I would like leave the class in tears, like I would get into it with my professor, like I just couldn't, I don't know, I don't know exactly how to describe that. But I was also taking astronomy, so then I would go into my astronomy class and it would just felt like the entire world was opened up to me. I had gone to university before out of high school and taken a few years off, so coming back into school, it was just like someone opened the windows in the attic. So like an awakening maybe? Yeah, there we go. So it was a total awakening, you know, and especially I had studied space and astronomy on my own and I wasn't sure how to kind of grasp it, you know, but the professor I had was amazing and he was actually the senior scientist for the Hubble telescope for like 20 years. His name is Dr. Miguel Moreno. He really, I mean, he changed everything for me, you know, and I started out um, in university as an English major the first time I went to school, so coming back I was a philosophy major. He would point out what was philosophy when we were studying so he would say well this is this relates to philosophy so he was always kind of engaging me in that way and so when I really thought about it I asked him you know do you think that I could major in astronomy I have no science background I don't really have a strong math background and he was like yeah you definitely can do this you know you just take it one semester at a time there's people here to help you we need women 100% and so I thought about it for a few days and I just went and changed my major there was a sign a JPL flyer on campus 
So every day when I would walk back to my car after class, I would check the flyer to like double check the date. I had like a picture of it on my phone. I just was like, I have to go to this meeting, you know? And so the meeting was Eddie and Rosalind came down from JPL to speak to uh, my college about internships and the NCAS program. So the NCAS program is a NASA Community College Aerospace Scholars program. And I just completed that. It's two, it comes in two parts. The first part is a five-week kind of like online research portion. And NASA provides all this research material, and you have to you know, learn the material, take tests on it, and get high scores. And then at the end, you have to do a research project. So I did a 10-page research paper on where I basically planned a Mars uh, mission and then a campaign as well. So I marketed to get the public involved in this mission that I designed. So your mentor mentioned that you also model, is that true? Yes, yeah, so actually, this is where I guess it all kind of made sense. My mom is an actress and a model, and so growing up, I was always on set with her. She would take me to castings, and when I was like nine, I started modeling when I was nine years old with my mom. And um, I actually, it was really funny because I found a work permit from when I was 12 the other day. The like entertainment industry has to like issue these work permits when you're underage, of course. So I found this work permit, I was 12 years old, and um, you know, I was missing school to be in a music video. So growing up, that was just, you know, but my mom also has a bachelor's um, in science. She's a nurse. You know, I was able to see her do both. You know, she would be like come home off set and just be like so glamorous and beautiful. And then, you know, on the weekends would put on her scrubs and, you know, go to work. I was never uncomfortable with those two. I kind of felt like I didn't necessarily want to only model or only you know I always have loved learning and loved school and things like that and so I felt like it was really important and I wanted to go back. Modeling is competitive in a whole different way you know like I'd rather intellectually compete kind of with myself than physically compete with a million other girls ages 14 to 225 it, it cuts off. Yeah exactly yeah yeah my <laughs> my career is coming to an end you know. <laughs> no so I mean I never really took it seriously because I always felt like you know, there's something more out there for me. Not that, I mean, it isn't an amazing career, but I just felt like for myself personally, there was something more that I really needed to be doing, you know, or that I'm here to do, you know. That brings us back to here, the Sackness Conference. I mean, we talk about intersectionality and how we're people of color, but we are more complex and we're, we're underrepresented in STEM, but we're more complex than just that one note thing. I don't know if you also have an issue with trying to promote your intersectionality. I'm mixed as well. My mom is Creole and Irish, and then my dad is um, a mix of Hispanic, Native American, African American, and his mom's from Canada. You know, my parents are both mixed, and they were mixed at a time when not that many people were mixed. And even my grandparents, you know, my grandmother was Creole and Irish, and it was just like nobody was mixed like that, and she couldn't pass for either or, you know, at that time. I think I've struggled with that my entire life, and I especially now with everything that's going on politically and kind of in society it's really hard because especially like as a child when you were bullied by certain groups of kids and you're just like you don't really know where you fit in but I think that it's important to not as cliche as it sounds you don't need to necessarily fit in you know what I mean like I feel like even though it's important to promote intersectionality it's not what makes me me you know it like you said there's so many other things behind what we are mixed with or what we look like on the outside you know and so I don't know I struggle with it I don't have a very clear opinion on it right now you're young yeah I guess that. <laughs> I barely have a clear opinion on it so 
coming from like an entertainment background and not really being confident in science, how was it your first like year into this program where you're like doing the science like for the first time and we were just talking about before we recorded imposter syndrome. So like, have you been dealing with that? When was the first time you heard about imposter syndrome? Do you remember a moment where like, Oh my God, that's what this is. One really cool thing is, is, you know, I grew up in LA and so my dad would take us to the Griffith Observatory almost, you know, every weekend we were at Griffith Park doing something there, you know, and I loved the observatory. So I, as I look back on my childhood, um, you know, we had like a, a really cool telescope that my parents used to set out on the lawn and the neighbors would come. One time the police came by and were looking at our telescope with us, you know, it just was like a thing, like we had this big, huge telescope on our front lawn. So, I mean, I always did have a love for that. You know, my mom was like, you know, taught me how to read at a really young age and was just always kind of pushing that sort of thing. So it's as for like the actual science, I think I felt imposter syndrome pretty early on, especially at school. The community college I go to is a big um, has a big fashion program on campus. People are like, oh, so you're a fashion student. I mean, they'll like come up to me. And just assume, you know, you're a fashion student. I'm, no, actually, I'm a science major. And then they're like, what are you majoring in? And I'm, I'm majoring in astronomy. And they're like, oh, but you you don't look like, or you're too pretty, or you're too... And I'm like, I don't know, would you like to buy a vowel to finish that sentence? Because it's always like they stop right before they really say what they're trying to say to you, you know? And you're just like, oh my gosh. The first time I really realized that it was like a thing, like imposter syndrome, I saw this TED talk, actually. There's this astrophysicist out of UCLA. She's like, you know, I'm an astrophysicist. I'm African-American. I love makeup. I love fashion. I love magazines and all that type of thing. And she's an actress and she's also a scientist. And so she's starting this program to get girls involved in the arts and in the sciences. To answer your question, I still deal with it. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty early on in my education. I'm about three semesters in. And especially when I went up to JPL for the NCAS program, I kind of walked in and was just like, who let me in, you know? And, and you know, in my free time last semester, mainly I would go up to um, Caltech and go to like their astronomy colloquium or I would like go to lectures that they were holding there. And I was always just terrified someone was gonna be like, you don't belong here and like kick me out, you know? Like, please don't kick me out. I just wanna sit in the back and listen, you know? But I spoke to a woman who's in her 40s and she's going back to school to be an astrophysicist and she had gotten into university right out of high school and she had a professor tell her, nobody's gonna take you seriously because you're a woman and because you're short. He says, because you're a short woman, that's what he said. Nobody's gonna take you seriously, so you might as well just drop it. And she dropped out of school and took a whole nother career path and now she's back you know going to school and she's like this is what I was meant to do all along and I was just deterred you know and I think for me when I stepped foot in my astronomy class it was like I just fell in love it's like the the feeling that I have when I you know I'm studying astronomy or anything space or science I'm it's like the same feeling I have when you're falling in love like I have butterflies and I just want to talk about it and tell people about it and you know so totally agree with you I, when I started undergrad it was like the first time I felt like I belonged somewhere like when I started my um, science undergraduate degree I really really felt like I belonged now that has gone up and down in into now I'm a faculty member and but I, I totally can identify with that feeling that you have right now and that's that's really really great and I think we need to say that to our listeners like if you find something that you're really passionate about like hold on to it and it's gonna go up and down <laughs> but just keep on re remember that feeling you know from the very beginning that's what's gonna keep you going really you know is just that initial and it's, I, I think about that all the time that first day when Professor Moreno walked in and said that we're all made of star stuff and I just like fall out of my chair you know I just felt like so 
I guess, included, you know what I mean? Because that's the thing about space and the universe is it seems so, I think, abstract to so many people, but it's it's where we live, you know? It's just like how people travel, you know, all over the planet that we're on now. It's just like the universe is just as much ours as the planet that we live on is ours, you know? And I think that if people had a clear understanding and kind of could kind of grasp what was going on in the universe, just like they know what's going on here on Earth, everybody could kind of feel that, you know? This is Regina Barbara DeGraff, host of Spark Science, and you are listening to our episode about new science ideas and inclusive education. We recorded on location at the SACNAS convention in Long Beach, California. Tell me what you want to do, like what do you want to do with astronomy and like do you want to be a professor, do you want to be in industry, do you want to, what, what do you want to do? So how I kind of came about what I want to do is sort of like a marriage of really my childhood, you know, like the two kind of happiest parts of my childhood or what I can really recall are, you know, like I said, like being up at the Griffith Observatory or a telescope with my family and, you know, being on set with my mom and, and you know, a lot of my friends work in entertainment and, you know, but I never felt 100% at home there, you know, I just felt like I don't really feel like this is what, you know, I'm supposed to be doing. I want to transfer to USC and I'm going to actually major in astronomy there, but I'm going to get a Bachelor of Arts and I'm going to minor in uh, journalism communications. So they, um, it, you know, it focuses on kind of how to get the word out within um, music and media and fashion and kind of how they all tie together to promote something within pop culture. With the Bachelor of Arts in Astronomy, that you know, they also offer a Bachelor of Science, but you can pursue either a double major or a minor. And so I'm going to do that because what I want to do is be um, a science communicator within pop culture. So what my plan is, is kind of, I mean, I'm really inspired by Neil deGrasse Tyson and Bill Nye, you know, I just like adore them. And I think growing up, the only female I had and we had to look up to in science pop culture was Miss Frizzle from the Magic School Bus. So, I mean, the, she's not real. Exactly. You know, the fact that the only female was a fictional character, you know, in a cartoon is just like, there still hasn't really been a woman that is forefront of, I think, pop culture and promoting science, you know, yeah. You know, it's just, it's so important, and I think especially for girls to look up to somebody and see, or look up to a lot of somebodies, you know what I mean? They, sh they should see a lot of different representations of women that are just as revered as, I think, artists, you know, because I think the intellectual process by which scientists create is identical to the process by which artists create, you know, they really, there's not much difference there. What my plan is to do is just kind of bridge the gap between science and pop culture, which is why I'm so in love with what you're doing. Because it's a good I've talked to many people about that too, and, and I was talking to a comic book writer, and her husband does the artwork, and she does Girl Genius, I don't know if you heard about this, it's a webcomic that's been going on for like almost two decades, and, I, and she was talking about writing characters and asking why like why is this guy the villain like why is this person the hero why is this person grumpy in this scene and i told her that 
her whys are like science whys. You know, like that's what science is. We're asking why. Why is this work? Why does the story work? What is the story? You know, and I think that's what writers do. That's what people that make art do. That's what actors like. Why is this character acting this way? You know, and I feel like completely agree with you. There needs to be more of a connect between the scientific method and how we kind of analyze the world and how do we analyze art and how do we express you know, our emotions and what we feel and all this kind of stuff. So I totally agree with you. Is there anything else you would like to add before I ask you about pop culture in general? If there's anything that I would feel most passionate about within kind of space exploration, it's just that more people would know the work that's going into space exploration. I think NASA does such an incredible job more people should know, you know what I mean? There's just like these scientists and engineers and everybody that's working just, this is their whole life, you know, and they just dedicate everything they have to propelling us forward as a human race. And it's just not fair to me that it's not out there more or as much as other things within pop culture, which I won't mention specific things. What I want my life's work to do is just get that out there more. The president of the Planetary Society had told the story about how he had spent like five years working on this mission that had basically blown up. So he like saw like five years of his life like explode. So like I think there does need to be more stories like telling stuff like that, like how soul crushing that is, but also about how gratifying it is when it does. Like the New Horizons, you know, when that went over Pluto, like the amount of excitement that we had you know people didn't really understand so well yeah and then you know they brought us into the mission control room where they manned the rover landing on mars and you know we sat in all the chairs that they were sitting in and then they played the video on the big screen and i just cried the whole time like i was just an emotional wreck in the back of the room because it's just more people should have that it was just one of the most amazing things i've ever experienced you know it's just like when you go to a movie and you see like you know how a movie will kind of touch you or a music will really move you or you know art or whatever it is it's just like that is up there and it's real it's like what's happening right now and it's like you said what people are dedicating their lives working for so I'm gonna go into pop culture because it's something I love and I'm now I'm finding out that you love it as well I, I was a kid who basically TV was like my best friend like it was my friend late at night in the morning every time and like Star Trek Star Trek Next Generation was like my jam what kind of pop culture would you like to infiltrate where I am going for is going to be specifically the urban side of pop culture so more like thin music I would say like rappers I am really fascinated with kind of collaborations between rappers and scientists I just think that would be, you know, that's like my dream, really. Um, I A lot of my friends work in entertainment and in music and specifically in the urban side of music entertainment. And so when I've gone to parties or events, I've been able to have conversations like this with different artists or just different people. And people are so fascinated, you know, and they're just, they want to know more and they want to know, you know, I've explained to some people what NASA is. Things like that that I've been able to explain to people and just have these conversations, I realize that everybody wants to take part in it. I think it's just hard for people to know where to start because, I mean, that's how I felt. It's just like, where do you really grasp or how do you really grasp the universe, you know? And so what I'd like to do is uh, visual collaborations between artists and scientists and, you know, in the urban side of pop culture. It would kind of create a whole new lane 
for kids to pursue. You know, it wouldn't necessarily be I need to drop out of school. I do want to add there, I just interviewed a woman named Samus. That's her rapper name. Um, I think, I don't I remember. Saw, yeah. I saw that, yeah. She, she's freaking amazing. She was so nice. She was like helping my daughter and I think that's amazing. What is your favorite pop culture thing like right now? You know what? I just really like, a lot of albums are being released right now. Artists are just like kind of steadily like releasing albums and so it's really exciting to kind of hear what everybody's working on and just that is awesome I I ask the same thing to every interviewee on my show and it's how is your field portrayed in pop culture and how is it good and how is it bad so your field would be like students going into astrophysics but it would also be like models and stuff like that so give me some good examples and get like really accurate examples that you've seen in pop culture and really inaccurate examples I guess, I think that it's just more that people that are into education and science and whatever are nerds, you know? And it's just like this nerdy stereotype and there's always like the nerd at the cool table. It's like the kind of like novelty nerd that everybody wants around you. I wouldn't even identify as a nerd because I don't know what that really means because I feel like anybody can be interested in, in what we're interested in, you know? And even the appearance thing, you know, where it's like the hot girl that's actually a nerd. It's just like, what does that even mean, you know? And so I think one really cool example I've seen of someone kind of like flipping the switch is um, my mentor at JPL. She was a model and she was with an agency in New York and, you know, was working for years and then decided she wanted to go back to school and she went to back to school to be an engineer. And so now she's um, an engineer at JPL and she's just brilliant, you know, and she just is like, it's just so cool to have her to look up to, to see, you know, that she was like, I'm not going to just be this one thing, you know, and she's so much more and she's proven to herself that she's capable, you know, and so to me that was really amazing to be able to work with her and just have her, you know, tell me her story and feel like, like, okay, I can do this, you know what I mean? So I, I have a story, this is really where the light bulb went off and I really was like able to see clearly what it is that I want to do and what it is that I want my work to be. Within the same week that Einstein's theory, you know, about the gravitational waves was proven correct, Kanye West released this album. He was going to name it Waves, actually. And there was this big, huge, like, Twitter war with him and another artist over the name of the album, and it was a disaster. And so he changed the name of his album to Life of Pablo. But within two days of Einstein's gravitational waves, you know, being detected, he changed the album name what happened was, you know, the scientific world went nuts when that happened. You know, it was just like, there was, didn't they run out like a big hall? I feel like they rented out a hall and then they had to run out an even bigger one because everyone wanted to be there. And at the same time, Kanye West sold out Madison Square Garden because he had an album listening party along with a fashion show, like the release of his, I think the second season of his line, or might have been the first the fashion in the music world was going insane because no one had ever done anything like that. You know, he combined a listening party where he dropped this new album while having his fashion show and it just nobody had done that. And then of course the science world was going crazy because it was like something for decades, you know? And so first of all, I think he should have kept the name. I think he should have kept it Waves because he always kind of talks about how he's he compares himself to like the geniuses of the world, you know, and I just think like that would have been a really cool um, tribute to like one of our biggest geniuses, you know, and I think if there would have been a connect there between the two, it could have been a really cool experience 
within pop culture if there was more of a connect you know what I mean like a plug between like what was going on in that world in, in like the pop cultural world and what was going on in the science world because it was just within days of each other it was happening and so when I saw that I just thought like I don't want this to ever happen again like I want this to be a very clear everybody is celebrating I mean it, what if they would have had a celebration together you know what I mean for that and it could have just been celebrating two really important things in history I think Kanye would say you're a genius I want to thank you for talking because that was that is just an awesome endpoint of talking with our interview and I just I wish all the best I know you're gonna be amazing I know you're gonna get into science communication and it's gonna be awesome thank you for talking to me Dominique thank you, thank you so much for having me it's been great at the Sackness National Convention here in Long Beach and I am here and I'm going to let you introduce yourself Natasha and what you do at in grad school and also with Vanguard STEM and what that is. So my name is Natasha Berryman and I am sort of a non-traditional graduate student who right now is nestled in a master's to PhD bridge program and it's at Fisk University. It's a partnership between Fisk University and Vanderbilt and essentially what you do is you get your master's degree, they bridge you over to a PhD and it's built for people who need an immersive experience in the sciences. They didn't get enough of it when they were in undergrad, they didn't get it at all when they were in undergrad. They're coming from a different field which is true in my case. I am classically trained as um, a technical writer and a communicator so while I had always been interested in science I wrestled with this idea of whether or not I could actually do it and when I finally got to a spot where I realized that I was capable of it I started to seek out programs that would support me in that. I also currently serve as the editor-in-chief for VanguardSTEM.com, which is a website that's geared towards supporting women of color in STEM. And the goal there is to just create a community, right, of women of color, because we are underrepresented in STEM fields, but we're here, you know, we're doing our thing, we're doing it well. And the whole point of it really is just to encourage one another, create a safe space to talk about the things that are relevant to our narratives and really recognizing and celebrating the fact that it's all different for each of us but there are common threads and themes that can also unite us. So what kind of science have you have you started to do in your bridge program? I am officially in the biology section but what I do um, specifically is neuroscience and um, right now I'm in a lab where we look at the proteome. I mean, it's the family of proteins that are recruited and involved uh, in, in this in a particular pathway. We look at the dopamine transporter pathway because it plays a critical role in many neurodegenerative diseases and then also it has lots of bearing on drug abuse and just the way that um, the folks who contend with those issues, the way their bodies work, the way that their brains work, all that stuff, it's essentially rooted in that. So we look at the proteins that are involved because that gives us insight about like how our brains are actually 
functioning in the context of drug abuse. So we specifically look at cocaine and methamphetamine. It also helps us, or will hopefully position folks to come up with therapies that are just more pointed, detailed, actually helpful. And then the other thing that's exciting about it is that other folks' research, and it's something that we piggyback on, is this idea that in folks who abuse methamphetamine, for instance, they develop early onset Parkinson's disease because of the way that the proteins are functioning in the brain. They mirror one another. So if you're abusing meth and... Um, you end up with Parkinson's or Parkinson's-like symptoms, you know, and we're trying to understand why that is, how we get there, and then, you know, so that in the long run someone can do something about it. Did you always want to work in neuroscience or when, before when you were doing technical writing, was there like an aha moment that you had like in childhood or in your adulthood before you went into this program about this is what I want to do in science? Yeah, so it's kind of funny because initially, like, my interest in science, and it's probably true for lots of little kids especially, was, like, marine biology. I was just like, yeah, penguins, right? Like, I was all about penguins. And then I got really practical. I come from a family that is very loving and very mighty and very caring, but also pretty dysfunctional. And as a result of that, I learned at a very early age that it was important to be really like practical and pragmatic and logical because those are things that directly tie to survival at least in my case right and not only that but success so as I got older I was like well um you know let's let's get a little bit more practical so I went actually into communications because I was afraid to go into the sciences I was good at writing it was one of those things that they funnel kids who are impoverished right and struggling in school like you're acting out they're going to put you into a program that you know allows you to channel that energy and for me it was into writing and public speaking acting that kind of stuff so I clung to writing because it was this outlet for me because it was a place that was safe right in my mind I could retreat to this thing I could articulate what I was feeling it helped me to just deal with the world so when I got to college I was like well I'm good at that right I should do that because science is big and scary and it's not for people like me and I'm not sure that I'm actually able to do that. I had gone to four different high schools before I got into undergrad. The curriculum and it was across three different states so the curriculum was nuts. You know I felt like I was unprepared. I didn't think that I could go in there. To this day people are like I'll go into a classroom um, and right now I'm in a molecular cell biology course and every time I'm in there my professor is like yeah this is stuff you learned in high school I never learned that in high school so I'm just like constantly filling in that gap I didn't feel prepared I was like I'm gonna go into tech like technical writing and that's the thing that I'm gonna do and then what ended up happening sort of very serendipitously was that I ended up landing a job at an R1 institution in the state in which I was living at the time and I was a science writer, like I became a science writer. So I would meet with these top-notch scientists, they would tell me about their story, and then I would go and, you know, communicate that. And were you given that assignment of science writer and they just like gave it to you, like you didn't pick it? Yeah, exactly. That's it, exactly. I mean, I was excited about it because I thought, oh, you know, science is interesting. But, like, I went to Ferris State University for undergrad and uh, Sandy Balkama is the woman who leads the program that I was in. And she's like, what we do is to prepare you to talk about anything, right? And like that 
that was really the confidence for it. So when I would go into these interviews, they'd be like, well, you know, do you know anything about science? Do you know anything about ecology, agronomy, all these? And I'm just like, no, but I'm a technical writer, so I can figure it out, right? <laughs> so then I was just like shoved into this this um the world of science and i was like excited but also really scared so i remember interviewing someone and he was amazing he was looking at uh tuberculosis and right from like a molecular level um with implications for pharmaceuticals and essentially what he was trying to do was to shut down this particular pathway in the tuberculosis bacterium that allows it to fun like live in a hypoxic environment in the body, right? So in the absence of oxygen, that's how it forms tumors, that's how it lives in us. It's crazy. And he's like, if I can shut this pathway down, I can do the thing that I need to do. And he was super excited about social justice and understanding um, and just realizing that the implications of drug development and disease management extends to places well beyond the states. So tuberculosis isn't an issue that Americans are all that worried about because we're like, yeah, we're a forward country, that's a thing. But in most of the world, tuberculosis is a huge issue, right? And because we live in a place where you can hop on a plane and go from wherever to wherever, and tuberculosis is a, a bacterium that lives dormant in your body, it should be an issue for Americans. Okay, so... And thinking about that, he was just super like um, into philanthropy and it was just, it was so inspiring to me that this person who was so smart and who was so innovative in his field also managed to be both aware of the world and committed to affecting it in a positive way, right? For folks who come from poor backgrounds. And that really resonated with me. And then not only that, but we had this conversation one day where I was just like, you know, I, I really think that I want to do research, but I don't know if I can. And he's like, you can't. You don't actually have to be a researcher to have an effect in the world of science, right? And not only that, but an effect that has broader implications for the rest of the world. You can do something about that you can you know partake in this world and that was really inspiring to me and he was the first person who had ever told me that and I was 25 at the time and I was just like what you know wow so that was really huge for me and it sparked it galvanized me to pursue my education outside of that I think that was a wonderful story so I want to go into like the next part that we were talking about this idea of if you could go back to yourself when you were like deciding to go into technical writing because you were scared of science. Now, everything you've gone through and everything you lived, what would you tell yourself? And would you tell yourself to do something different or would you tell yourself to like stay the course? And, and how does that relate to what you would tell the students, the many, 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 many students here at SACNAS, how to be successful in science? So I'm not sure I would go back and, and tell myself to do anything different other than to supplement my, my training in technical writing with other classes that you know, are relevant to STEM fields. I have realized, and it's a message that I really, uh, I tell when I'm talking to folks, other young women especially, who are interested in science but are also afraid of it, it's just that there's no one way to be successful. There's no one way to be excellent. There's no one way to enter the field of, or any of the fields of STEM, right? And um, 
my ability to communicate has is really it, it gives me an edge in the field right so like I can always go back and get the didactic training that I need I can always go back and get the technical lab training that I need and that's what I'm actually doing right now but my colleagues struggle to articulate not only their science but why they're doing it why it's important who it helps if it helps anyone or if it's just important to further basic knowledge and that's okay if that's the case but you have to be able to talk about that and that's something that I can do definitely true of my experience I'm not sure that I would go back and change it and if I could tell myself something though it, it would be that like your life is hard it's going to be hard and there are going to be things that really challenge you and that feel like they're going to break you, but they won't, yeah. right? And then I guess the other thing I would tell myself is that it's okay to be walking down the path that you're on. It's going to lead to the thing that helps you to do whatever the thing is that you decide, right? And at that point, I don't, I don't really think that I knew what it was. Um, and now I think I have a clearer vision of that, but I'm also telling myself now and would tell myself back then that you need to give yourself room to grow, right, and to um, respond to the, the circumstances and the environments that you're in. You don't have to have a rigid plan. There isn't one path to get there. And even though it might feel very turbulent along the way, there's still success there. And not only that, growth as a person. That's really good advice. I, I think that also we really need to talk to faculty and we need to talk to um, advisors and mentors on how, how do you navigate the waters of um, dealing with somebody or helping advise somebody who doesn't have the same experiences as, as you. What advice would you tell them? And again, there's, I know there's many, many things to tell them, but what, like, what was one of the things you would like to tell faculty? Right. So I guess I would say, <laughs> at least, especially if I'm traveling back in time and I'm saying the thing to them, the world is going to look very different from how it does right now. And you have got to get it out of your mind that because you're born in a particular generation or because, you know, the students that you're training are born in a particular generation, that they all have the same set of characteristics. We are not all monolithic. Or we're not all millennials, right? Um, I don't even ascribe to that designation because I don't identify with those things. You know, I think that we can all at times be entitled, right? We can all at times feel that way, but that isn't something that has to define who we are as a group of people. That being said, you have to approach your students and, and think about them, especially if you're saying to me or to you know, the folks who are funding you that you are interested in their growth as people. You have got to then be able to step back and approach them as a person. They aren't this project for you. They aren't um, this set of characteristics that you have to adjust and change and make better because there's something wrong with them. They are not all the same. We do not all come from the same places. We do not all have the same sort of um, familial support, financial support, mental, emotional support. I'm only 27, but I've been through some things that I, I've not run across folks who are older than me who've encountered those same things. And it's wrong to assume that because you're young, you are somehow, you're missing something. Like, you know, like the world's unclear to you in some way. You can be young and have done a lot of living and you need to approach these students that you're mentoring and training with that level of sensitivity. It's really, really true. I, I, I need to do that too as a, as a faculty member. I need to be more aware and always check myself and take a step back. 
I want to go into some levity now. <laughs> and is there a way that neuroscience or even organizations that support women of color or people of color in STEM, or even scientists of color in the media, how has that been portrayed that you know of that, that has been fairly accurate and fairly not accurate? Yeah, so I, you know, I do neuroscience, and off the top, I'm, again, I'm just getting completely honest. I'm not like super aware of all the pop culture things, so there might be something out there that um, does portray, you know, neuroscientists, scientists, whatever, in a in a positive way. But I really struggle to find that. <laughs> like, I do. Yeah, I mean, not even that, but like in a way that is uh, that doesn't just like completely close down a narrative. So like, I love Big Bang Theory. Like, it's super funny to me, but it's also like, yeah. So this is just like one type of scientist and one thread of scientists and there aren't even people on the show I think who really honestly sort of reflect what it's like to be you know those other things Um, for me like well if someone always asks me like oh what you know scientists like what is the thing that comes to mind when you think about them it's intersectionality for me right we're not just one thing like we don't all have one identifier one modifier we're all kinds of things so it, there's this movie that I it's a sci-fi film and it's is awesome like it's <laughs> I think it's great right it's called um, predestination have you ever seen it you should watch it and I'm gonna watch it when I go yeah it's good it's not for children like, <laughs> you, don't, you don't watch it with kids the themes are just like they're too heavy but when I think about um, because for me when I think about neuroscience the thing that got me into it was just this idea that life is awesome and we live it right like we're biologically alive sentient but our nervous system and the thing that it does like it, this it begins with a separation of charges and that separation of charges is what allows us to have uh, to experience life as opposed to just living it so when I think about that concept and, just, and, and that that like life is a series of experiences predestination comes to mind because it I mean there's like time travel and, and these sort of like overlapping realities and just like the implications of one experience crossing over with another and that to me sort of summarizes like what our brains are like right in the sense that like we can we can be here and experience a thing now but we can also in our minds go forward go backward and experience something there too and it can be very real for us in essence no I I love it I know that was that was very deep thank you for talking to me and I hope you have a wonderful time at the rest of this conference and have a safe trip back thank you thank you thank you thanks for having me was so happy I got to meet you Thank you for joining us. We interviewed scientists at the Sackness National Convention, which focuses on making STEM more inclusive. If you missed any of our show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com, or to kmre.org and click on the podcast link. We'll be back again next week. Listen to us on 102.3 FM in Bellingham or kmre.org streaming on Sundays at 5 p.m., Thursdays at noon, and Saturdays at 3 p.m. If there's a science idea you're curious about, post a message on our Facebook page, Spark Science. This is an all-volunteer-run show, so if you want to help us out, go to sparksciencenow.com and click on Donate. Today's episode was recorded on location in Long Beach, California in October 2016. Our producer is Regina Barbara DeGraff. The engineer for today's show is Natalie Moore. Special thanks to the Society for the Advancement of Chicanos and Native Americans in Science, which is what SACNA stands for. Our theme music is Chemical Calisthenics by Black Alicious and Wonderland by Janelle Monet. Lead, gold, tin, iron, platinum, zinc When I rap, you think Iodine, nitrate, activate Red uranium, the only difference is I transmit sound
Balance whistle, balance that you add a little talent in. Careful, careful with those ingredients. They can explode and blow up if you drop them and they hit the ground.